Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to IPV and me. I do apologize. It's been so long. Um, I'm sorry about that. Life kind of caught up with me. Um, I also got caught up in doing a lot of research for this episode. So uh, it took a little longer than I was intending. Um, I also went on vacation. I went home to Ireland. It was my little nephew's first birthday. It was also his christening. I had a great time. Uh, He's getting so big now. He's so different. Uh, from when I saw him last he was like six months old so big changes um but yeah I had such a good time my sister also took the week off while I was home so it was a lot of uh long lunches and dinners and day drinking walks on the beach um it was great I just I love going home I wish I could do it more often uh it's good for the soul you know get some fresh air Uh, I also had my first interview for a publication last week about my experiences with domestic abuse. Uh, I was super nervous. I just wanted to make sure, you know, that I said everything I wanted to say and said it how I wanted to say it, but it went really, really well. Uh, My interviewer, she was really lovely and took time to really listen to my responses and she asked appropriate questions uh she made it really comfortable for me she also made it really clear that she wanted to handle the subject uh delicately so that made you a huge difference um i was just sent a copy of it actually yesterday before it goes to publication and i'm really really happy with it i'll share it with you once it is published which should be really soon Uh, It was a bit of a strange weekend here in New York. We had, of course, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is still so hard to take in all these years later. Uh, Whenever I'm in the area or looking down towards that direction, I don't think there's ever a moment where I don't think about the victims and also think of the survivors as well. I can't even begin to process what a tough day it must be for them. Uh, all of my thoughts and love go out to them. It was a very somber day in the city, as you can imagine. Um, so we're thinking of all of those survivors and all the victims. Uh, and another completely different uh, vibe. This weekend, we also had the VMAs and the Met Gala in New York. Um, I realized how old I'm getting when I didn't recognize the majority of the attendees at the VMAs. I really had no idea who they were. Um, There was a time in my life where I knew every single celebrity there was to know, and now I honestly don't have a clue. (laughs) Getting older. Priorities change. Uh, The Met Gala was a little disappointing for me. Um... I feel like people didn't really stick to the theme that well. Um, I did love AOC's outfit. I loved Iman's. I thought Shawn Mendes looked amazing. Um, Rihanna also always looks great. I was a little disappointed first when I saw her, but then when I um, when she mentioned what her idea behind it was, I thought that was really great. And she just looks really happy. I love her. Um, and ASAP together I think they're just such a beautiful couple and they seem really happy and relaxed together so they looked great um 
Yeah, so anyways, back to the podcast. As I mentioned in my last episode, I want to speak in the next coming episodes about some true life cases of domestic abuse. Um, Today I'm going to start with quite a high profile case. Um, It is the case of Susan Cox Powell. Uh, You may have heard of it if you're a follower of true crime podcasts. This one gets covered in in a majority of them. Uh, It's a case that has always stuck out to me. Um, To me, it really highlights the dangers of leaving an abusive relationship or even how dangerous just threatening to leave can be. And also how abuse can be passed down through generations and that you can never really truly trust the actions of an abuser. So I follow this case for years now. Um, I have a bunch of sources listed in the bio um, and uh, you know I also wanted to point out some podcasts who've done amazing episodes on this case. Uh, You should definitely check them out. Red Handed which is one of my favorite podcasts in general. two British girls um, run it and they're just amazing so much detail in every episode so well researched um, and they're really funny as well but they did a really great episode on this Um, and also the very first true crime podcast I ever listened to which is and that's why we drink they also did a really great episode on this um, so check those out if you can as well as the sources that I have listed above Okay, so here is the story of Susan Cox Powell. Josh Powell was born in 1976 to Stephen and Tarika in Washington. Stephen had always been a follower of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, but suddenly began adopting extremist views, such as saying he had a right to take another wife. He even had an already married woman in mind and both wrote songs about her and kept a diary in which he detailed his sexual fantasies about her. They divorced in 1994. In court files, Steve claimed that his wife practiced witchcraft and devil worship. She claimed his interest in pornography, which he also showed to his young sons, had corrupted him. She said he subjected Josh in particular to overly harsh discipline. He was both verbally and physically abusive to them. He issued them with severe spankings. When he was 13, Josh attempted to hang himself. Once when his mother asked him to do the dishes, he threatened her with a butcher knife. He also killed a gerbil that belonged to his sister. Tarika's mother said that Stephen was very anti-church, anti-country, anti-authority, anti-morality and very radical. He taught the boys to mock and insult their mother. Tarika's sister said that the boys had a very distorted image of their own questionable right to do anything they darn well please, combined with a very deep contempt towards women in general and any authority at all. Josh, along with his three brothers, ended up in their father Stephen's custody, while their sister went to live with their mother, although she too eventually ended up with Stephen. At one point, all five children ended up in the custody of Stephen's own parents for a year before eventually going back to their mother. Apparently, by the time this happened, they were all showing signs of being deeply traumatised. 
Susan Cox Powell was born in 1981 to Charles and Judy Cox in New Mexico before they eventually settled in Washington. She had three sisters. Susan was described as a typical girl who liked to ride horses. Her sister said she was my partner in crime. She had a good heart, did well in school, loved choir, loved getting her hair and nails done. She went to cosmetology, cosmetology school. She loved people to feel good. In 1998, Josh was living in Seattle and attending the University of Washington. He began a relationship with Catherine Terry Everett. He met her at a Latter-day Saints event. After they moved in together, he became possessive of her. She said he would have restrictions and limitations on what I could and couldn't do when it came to my family. If I was going to visit them, he had to come too. I couldn't go by myself. One day, she visited a friend without him and decided not to go back to him at all, breaking up with him over the phone. In November 2000, Susan met Josh at a social event for unmarried Mormons. She was 19, he was 20. She hadn't dated a lot before that. Home movies showed their blossoming relationship. Josh was confident and thought he could get any girl. Susan said he treated her well and promised he'd make her happy. He was ambitious, strong-headed and nerdy, dorky. He looked awkward, but he had a job, his own place. He was going to business school, so her family and friends thought he sounded okay. They quickly fell in love and always looked smitten. They went from not knowing each other in October to engaged by the end of December. Her sister wasn't supportive because she barely knew him, but Susan assured her they wanted the same things and he would make her happy. Susan looked pretty and traditional at her wedding and very happy. She was excited to show off Josh and start their lives together. As the reception went on, he started ignoring her and hanging out with his family and not her, and he kept disappearing. They didn't have much money, both did odd jobs, Susan was the financial provider, Josh never settled with a job. They moved to Utah for a better life, to buy a house and have kids. She was so excited when she got pregnant with Charlie. She always wanted to be a mom. Josh, however, was an unattached dad. Susan's best friend said he wanted to hold Charlie when he wanted to show him off to people, but he wouldn't change diapers, feed, or give him a bath. Then they had Braden. Pictures show them as joyous. The boys were mischievous and happy. Her best friend said Susan loved them more than anything in the world. Flash forward to December 7th, 2009. The kids didn't show up at daycare. By 7am, there was no sign of them and Susan also would have had to be at work by then. A snowstorm was coming in. Debbie from the daycare facility tried to call Susan and Josh, but there was no answer. So she was worried and drove to the house. She noticed that there were no tire tracks in the snow. She decided to call their emergency contacts, who were Josh's sister and mother. They thought of carbon monoxide poisoning, so they called the police. The cops come out, they break a window to get in, and inside they find unusual evidence. There is no one to be seen, their van is missing. Two box fans are pointing at the living room carpet and a wet sofa. There are traces of blood on the floor nearby. Susan's purse is on the table with her keys, wallet, driver's license and credit cards inside. The house is fairly clean, though blankets are missing from the kids' bedroom, but there's no sign of a disturbance. 
Susan's friends were afraid and thought maybe they had crashed or got stuck in the snow. They called around to see who had seen them. A friend and neighbour, Giovanna, had seen had seen them the night before. She had asked Susan to come over and help her with her knitting. Josh offered to make them all dinner, even though he never did anything domestic. Giovanna thought that this was unusual. He called his father to ask for the recipe for pancakes. They ate in the living room, which everyone said was very unusual for them. She also noted how Josh made the pancakes individually per person instead of a big batch. She said that Josh left with the boys around 5 p.m. Back to December 7th. Josh places a call to Susan's mom saying that they're on their way back. He says that he missed a day and thought it was Sunday. He comes back an hour later. He said he took the boys on a midnight camping trip, even though it's freezing cold outside. He said he left Susan in the house as she was sleeping. The police take Josh to the police station. He also wanted to take the boys with him. He said that he last saw her at midnight and she was watching a movie. He's very evasive and uses the kids who were in the room with him to distract him. He says he headed south and down the Pony Express, maybe 20 miles. He hooked up the heater and lit a fire for the boys. They made s'mores. He's not being very clear. Police ask if they can search the van and he agrees. They find it full of camping supplies, including a shovel and Susan's phone, which is hidden. He was like a deer in headlights when they told him. Susan's best friend said she knew he had done something when she heard that he came back without Susan. Friends and neighbours questioned why he took the boys out. They said it was typical of him, but that Susan never would have allowed it. Susan's best friend said she never believed his story. Cops, however, didn't have enough probable cause for a search of the residence. So while he's at home, Josh burns a metal object into oblivion and still to this day, no one knows what it was. Bags and bags of items are shoved into the garbage by him. The next day, he is spotted by neighbours thoroughly cleaning and vacuuming the van and washing towels. He had to be encouraged and reminded by family to go to his interview with the police. On the police tape of the interview, he's first of all acting very emotional, crying, his voice is shaking, he's trying to hold it together. As he is pushed, however, his demeanour changes. He says he doesn't remember what they did all evening before he left with the boys. He's not participating and shows no urgency in looking for her. He says he hasn't had a chance to search for her. He asks the police no questions about what they're doing to find her. He offers no suggestions about the where they should look. The cop even says to him, how am I going to find your wife without your help? Then they talk to Charlie, the oldest son. Braden would not talk to them. Charlie said that his dad and mom were there when they went camping. Charlie said, mommy didn't come back with us. This is quite significant for a four-year-old to say. He says a lot of things that don't make sense, like that they went on an aeroplane. He says, Mom stayed at Dinosaur National Park where the crystals are. Some people interpreted this as her being there, but not alive. When Josh is told this, he denies it. He says, sometimes his kids lie. He asks for a lawyer. They could have put him in jail at this point, but they said that they wanted to put a tracker on his car. But instead of getting back in his own car, he rents one instead and vanishes for 18 hours. 
When he brings the car back, it has 807 miles on the odometer. Meanwhile, Susan's friends were handing out flyers and doing everything they could to find her. They held a candlelit vigil. Josh came, but he arrived late and quickly left without saying anything. He never seemed to be concerned about Susan's whereabouts. He never participated in anything, according to Susan's best friend. It seemed his mind was somewhere else. He spoke briefly with local media. People were upset that he wasn't upset. Friends say that Josh had become controlling and their marriage was troubled. He controlled money even though she was the breadwinner. She had to ask his permission to do anything. One friend, Michelle, said he would give Susan amount of money. When grocery shopping, he had a spreadsheet that she was to look at through ads and find the cheapest price of things. When she went shopping, she came home and had to enter every single item into that spreadsheet. And if she spent more than a couple of cents more on a can of beans, Josh would really yell at her and get angry. He would make her knit socks instead of buying them. She was tormented. She said he changed and became unaffectionate. This is a common trait of abusers. She also said they had issues in the bedroom. He kept her at arm's length. In the summer of 2008, they reached rock bottom, constantly fighting. She told her best friend that one time they had a screaming match and she shoved him and he shoved her back and said, if you ever do that again, I'm going to hit you. Detectives spoke with Susan's friends who said that she made a videotape after, after consulting a divorce lawyer. The lawyer said to make a tape of everything in the house. She said in the tape that she's covering bases in case anything happens to her or her family. So her assets are documented. She shows all the property damage Josh's caused, like throwing her DVDs and punching the walls. This tape is available to watch on YouTube. I will leave the link in the bio. Josh warned her, if you divorce me, you'll never see the kids. So she stayed. Again, another reason why women stay. She's scared. She doesn't want her kids to be taken away from her. Susan kept a secret safe deposit box at the bank where she worked. Inside, police found a DVD, the one just mentioned, savings bonds and a makeshift will and testament handwritten on one piece of paper which was completely filled. She wrote how bad the marriage had become. He had taken out a million dollar life insurance policy on her. She told her boys she would never leave them and says, if I die, it may not be an accident. So why didn't police arrest him? They had plenty of evidence. This is something they took a lot of heat for. The DA's office wouldn't file charges and said that they needed to wait 12 months with nobody. They only named Josh as a person of interest. Within days of her disappearance, Josh closed her bank accounts, cleared her retirement fund and emptied the house. Police searched mines for months in the desert. This was because someone said Josh had told them once that the best place to dispose of a body would be in a mine. And this is also based on what Charlie said about her being where the crystals were because there were mines in the area that there were crystals. The family wouldn't give up hope. They kept looking. The media was beginning to turn on Josh and he wouldn't speak to them. So he takes the boys to Washington to his dad, Stevens. 
Stephen takes control, shields him from the media and takes charge of his life. He keeps the blinds drawn in the house, complete darkness. He said no to all media questions. They isolated themselves from the world. He was clearly not searching for his wife. Jennifer, Josh's sister, doesn't believe him and volunteers to wear a wire. She goes to her father's house. The boys were excited to see her. She asked Josh where Susan is, but he denied it. According to the police, she did a phenomenal job. She tries to get him to confess. She accuses him of killing Susan. He says he's not going to violate his attorney's direction. She was very frustrated. Her dad kicked her out, calling her terrible names. She says now that she doesn't regret doing it. She only regrets that she didn't get a confession. Susan's parents were very involved with the press. In the beginning, they were very polite, but after a while, they start calling out Josh in the media. On Saturday, August 20th, 2011, Susan's family are out together at a honking wave. A honking wave is where you make signs and stand on a busy street corner to get people to show their support. They wanted to do it to draw Josh out of hiding, so they picked a store corner they knew Josh and his dad shopped at. TV cameras were also there. They had shirts made with her face on, huge posters, balloons, they were handing out flyers. Then Stephen pulls up and confronts Susan's dad. He says it isn't helping to find her and they shouldn't be standing in his neighbourhood corner. He asks why they aren't doing it at other stores. Then Josh shows up. He has the boys in the van. He says that Susan's dad is using his sons in the media. August 24th, 2011, Josh does an interview with ABC. He appears very distant, has a hollow look and stare, according to the interviewer. She says she got chills when she shook his hand and wonders if he's trying to intimidate her. Josh says he's a good dad and was a good husband who provided for them and Susan, and Susan also contributed. Nothing convinced the interviewer that he wasn't part of what happened and why she disappeared. He says he won't talk about the camping trip because his attorneys told him not to. Stephen is also present and jumps in and interrupts. He says he also wants to be interviewed, but the interviewer had no interest in interviewing him. But she does. Stephen says he thinks that Susan left with another man and he drops a bombshell. He says that sexual things were happening between him and Susan. He says that she was flirtatious, says she enjoys that behaviour, as does he. He says that one time when he was holding Braden, Susan came to take him out of his hands and instead of reaching out to grab him, she pressed her breasts against his hands and left them there. He admits that he read her journals and it's clear from these the type of relationships that she has with males that she initiated. Susan often had referred to Stephen as creepy, but had no idea how creepy he actually was. After they got married, they had moved in with Stephen for a brief time. He was constantly videoing her for his own perverse gratification. He is a voyeur. He wrote, recorded and posted songs online about her. One time he hit on her and the audio was captured. He says in the audio that he's falling in love with her and can't stop thinking of her. He says he was extremely aroused sitting next to her on the couch and thinks that she was too. 
She says, I don't know where you're going with this. She says that he kisses her whenever they see each other and she doesn't like that and she's been meaning to talk to him about it. She makes it very clear that she's not interested and that she was very disturbed by it. When she told Josh, however, he just said, that's my dad. After the interview, the focus then shifted to Stephen. Maybe he was involved. Cops seized computers and boxes from his house. They were specifically looking for seven of Susan's diaries after the revelation in the interview. Josh said that they would explain her disappearance. They went through everything. They find Stephen's collection of voyeur videos. He would slide mirrors under the bathroom door when Susan was in there. He also has videos where he says, I love putting her underwear against my face, just smelling her scent, shooting video of her dirty underwear. He kept things like her used tampons, wax strips and cotton pads. He would mark each one for specific storage. A locked filing cabinet was full of images of young naked girls being videotaped without their consent. Neighbours as young as 7 and 12 were filmed while bathing. He had used a telephoto lens. He pled not guilty to voyeurism and child pornography. He was sentenced to five years. It became clear that the boys were at risk of harm, so they were taken by the state. Susan's father fought to keep them with him because Josh didn't want them with Susan's family. Friends think that he was scared that once the boys were older, they would start talking to Susan's parents about what happened to her. The boys would say things like they could only see their mom again if they went camping and that she went camping and never came back. Braden even drew a picture of a minivan with stick people and included his mom saying she was in the trunk. They interviewed Charlie again. He said that she got lost somewhere. It's very clear that he has been coached. His answers are evasive. He says he can't talk about Susan or camping and that he always keeps things secret. He says he didn't want to talk to them for this long and now he's done. Susan's parents had temporary custody, but Josh was able to get supervised visits taking place at a secure third party location. But he takes steps to get a new house and says that they shouldn't be concerned because Stephen never lived in this house. Susan's parents were concerned. He was very confident he was going to get custody again. His fighting for custody wasn't about being a father. Instead, it was about beating the Coxes. February 1st, 2012. Cops wanted to protect the boys, so they gave previously unreleased evidence to the courts. A cartoon with incestuous images, characters from popular Nickelodeon shows engaged in sexual acts. They have had it since 2009. It raised questions about Josh's ability to be a safe parent. He denies it, even though it was taken off his computer. The judge then ruled the boys would stay with the Coxes. He orders a psychosexual evaluation of Josh, including a polygraph that he had been avoiding since the very beginning. His plan had gone down. He looks diminished and psychopathic, defeated and like he knows he's out of options. Josh spends the next four days preparing. He took the boys' toys to the Salvation Army, transferred some of his finances, and bought five-gallon gas cans and filled them with gas. Susan's dad made it clear that he was afraid now that Josh was backed into a corner and knows that there's no way he's going to beat the evaluation. February 5th, 2012. 
The boys are going for a visit to Josh with a social worker while their grandparents are at church. The boys made it clear that they didn't want to go that morning. The social worker arrives at the rental house, parks in front. The kids rush to the door as they always did. She was a few steps behind them. She caught Josh's eye for just one second and says he had a weird look in his eyes. Then he slams and locks the door. She knocks and yells. She hears him say, Charlie, I've got a big surprise for you. Immediately, she smells gasoline. She knew it was an emergency, so she calls 911. Tells them who she is and what's happening. Says it's urgent. Now, if you listen to this 911 call, I've never been more infuriated with the 911 operator. Just listen to it, your blood will be boiling. The dispatcher ends up being reprimanded for it, but it's just infuriating. She asks how long it'll be before someone gets there. The dispatcher says he doesn't know how long it'll be because they have to respond to emergency life-threatening situations first. She says this could be life-threatening. She says she's afraid for their lives. The dispatcher asks if he's threatened their lives previously, but she doesn't know this. Then the house explodes. She goes screaming to neighbours in the hopes that they could get the boys out. The fire department arrive and find three bodies. Both boys had chopping wounds on the head and neck from an axe, but carbon monoxide poisoning is what killed them. Josh had arranged them on the floor next to him. He had sat on a gas can and set the fire. They died of smoke inhalation and gasoline in their lungs. On the morning of the 5th, he sent text and voice messages saying goodbye to various people. He clearly had planned this. His sister's voice message from him said, I'm not able to live without my sons and I'm not able to go on anymore. I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Why would he go through so much to get custody only to kill them? Like a typical abuser, if he can't have them, no one can. Also, it is likely it was to destroy evidence. The boys knew what happened to their mother, so they may have eventually told what happened as they got older. So many people could have done more on this case. Why was one woman in charge of these boys knowing that their dad potentially killed their mother? Why was Josh never arrested? The family filed a lawsuit. Why were Josh's parental rights put above the boys' safety? They were awarded $98 million, which the judge cut to $32.8 million in September 2020. Susan's dad said his intention is to save and help more children with the money. A year after Josh's murder-suicide, his brother Michael, a fierce defender of his brother and father, committed suicide by leaping from a building. At the time of his death, he was embroiled in a legal battle with the Coxes over 1.5 million in insurance policies issued to Charlie and Braden. Months before his death, Josh had changed his policy to list Michael as a primary beneficiary. This caused people to wonder if Michael had been involved in Susan's missing disappearance. Stephen Powell died in 2018 of heart problems, a year after being released from prison. Giovanna Owens, the neighbour who last saw Susan, thinks that Josh poisoned her with the pancakes he made that night for them all, as he made them separately for everyone, and Susan had said she felt sick after. 
Many believe Stephen was also involved along with Michael. The sad thing is that most likely now we will never know and Susan's body has never been found. 